Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to um, the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies of the National University of Singapore's panel on climate change, which is part of the Doha Forum. Uh, I'm going to begin in a minute with uh, Minister Grace Fu, who is the Minister for Sustainability and the Environment in Singapore. But before I do that, I have an announcement. We were to we have been joined by His Excellency, Mr. Badia Al-Dafa, the Special Envoy for Climate Change and Sustainability of the Foreign Minister of Qatar. But unfortunately, he has been taken ill and cannot join us. And I think I can speak for all of us, Minister Fu and the panelists, and indeed, I think for the Middle East Institute and the audience, in wishing uh, His Excellency Badia Al-Dafa uh, a quick and complete recovery. Uh, Minister Fu is well known in Singapore, but for the benefit of our international audience, let me just say a few words. Uh, before she joined politics and entered public service, she had a very distinguished career in the private sector in Singapore, in banking, as well as in the Port of Singapore Authority. There's something I didn't know about you, Minister after I read your bio. But anyway, uh, she is uh, an excellent choice to speak on this existential issue facing all of us in different ways in different parts of the world. And we are very grateful to you, Minister, for taking time from your schedule to join us. Now, nobody is here to listen to me. They are here to listen to you. So please, Minister, carry on. Thank you, Mr. Bilahari Kosikan, Chairman, Middle East Institute of National University of Singapore, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening from Singapore. I'd like to thank the MEI and the Doha Forum for inviting me to open today's session. This forum's theme on this existing in an existential crisis, the Asian response to climate change is timely and salient. Climate change is one of the most pressing issues facing us globally, and in many ways, Asia is at the front lines. A 2020 McKinsey report on climate risks and response in Asia identified Asia as the region most exposed to physical climate risks, with its low-lying coastal cities exposed to floods and typhoons, dramatic increases in heat and humidity, and extreme precipitation in some areas but droughts in others. The report highlighted that more than two thirds of the annual global GDP at risk from climate change comes from Asia. It has been estimated that in India, 30% of daylight hours of outdoor work may be lost by 2050 due to rising temperatures and humidity, hitting lower income groups harder as they typically work in sectors such as agriculture, mining, and construction. The agriculture sector may be further hit by declining or volatile yields. Flooding in some Asian cities is expected to become more frequent and intense, while Australia may face more frequent wildfires damaging assets. We may also lose more of our natural capital from glacier mass in the Himalayas to the Great Barrier Reef. For Singapore, climate change poses an existential challenge. It threatens our access to essential resources such as water and food and has consequences on public health and diseases. As a low-lying island city state in the tropics, we are particularly vulnerable to sea level rise. 
It is projected by 21st century, 22nd century, Singapore could experience mean sea level rise of up to one meter and more frequently, and more frequent and intense rainfalls. We're already experiencing such effects. For instance, just last month on April 17, we recorded Singapore's highest daily rainfall since 1980 as more than one month's rainfall in a single afternoon. Singapore is clear-eyed about its vulnerabilities and serious about tackling climate change. Earlier this year, the Singapore Parliament passed a motion that acknowledged climate change as a global emergency and a threat to mankind, and reaffirmed its commitment to deepen and accelerate efforts to mitigate and adapt to climate change in partnership with the private sector, civil society, and the people. Singapore has taken strong steps to address climate change. First, we seek to understand what climate change means for Singapore. In 2030, we set up the Center for Climate Research Singapore to better understand tropical climate science and oversee key research programs. One such example is our National Sea Level Program to strengthen our understanding of sea levels changes around Singapore and develop more robust projections of sea level rise. This will ensure that our adaptation plans are based on robust science. The ASEAN Specialized Meteorological Centre, hosted by the Meteorological Service Singapore, has a regional capability development program committed to enhancing scientific capabilities in weather and climate prediction for the Southeast region, Southeast Asian region. The program aims to deepen the region's understanding of climate science and its plan for different climate change contingencies. Second, we will do our part for mitigate, to mitigate climate change. We have undertaken a comprehensive suite of measures to reduce emissions across all sectors, including switching from fuel oil to cleaner natural gas for power generation since the early 2000s, wrapping up the deployment of solar energy and introducing a carbon tax, the first in Southeast Asia. Third, we will implement abatement adaptation measures to enhance our climate resilience. This includes protecting our coasts through a combination of master and spatial planning, leveraging conventional <laughs> engineering technologies and nature-based solutions, investing in drainage improvement works to enhance flood resilience, strengthening food security by growing local capabilities, building a robust and diversified supply of water to enhance water resilience and leveraging technology to mitigate rising urban temperatures. To effectively address climate change, we need a whole of nation effect, effort. This year, we launched the Singapore Green Plan 2030, our roadmap towards sustainable development and net zero emissions. The Green Plan is a multi-sectoral, multi-ministry and multi-stakeholder effort covering how we live, how we play and how we work and how we commute. It is a whole of nation plan involving businesses, communities, students, households to drive action on the ground. Five pillars, city in nature, sustainable living, energy reset, green economy and resilient future make up the green plan. With green government and green citizenry as key enablers. Simply put, 
Our green plan builds on earlier sustainability efforts over the decades and challenges ourselves to do more to contribute to the global fight against climate change. The innovative solutions we are pioneering may be relevant for other countries or cities facing similar challenges, including those in the Middle East. But climate change is ultimately a global challenge that small countries such as Singapore and Qatar cannot solve alone. While Singapore is responsible for 0.1% of the world's carbon emissions, we are disproportionately affected by the 99% that others admit. Tackling climate change needs a global solution. Countries, no matter how big or small, must play their part and cooperate with one another. As a responsible member of the global community, Singapore is actively working with all countries to address climate change. On the international front, Singapore is a staunch supporter of a multilateral rule-based approach to global issues, and we are committed to work with the international community to tackle climate change. We participate actively and constructively in international climate negotiations, including by co-facilitating ministerial discussions on various key issues. We're a strong supporter of the Paris Agreement and submitted our enhanced 2030 climate pledge and long-term strategy to the UNFCCC in March last year, despite the challenges posed by COVID-19. We also collaborate with international partners such as the UNDP, UNEP, and city networks such as the C40 to exchange experiences on climate change issues. As Singapore continues our journey towards a more sustainable future, we welcome opportunities to partner with Qatar and other countries in the Middle East to collectively tackle climate change. While our circumstances differ, we face many of the same challenges, including rising sea levels, higher temperatures, and threats to our water and food security. First, we should exchange expertise and share best practices on climate adaptation and mitigation strategies. For instance, Singapore and Qatar have invested in solar energy as part of our energy mix. Singapore is building one of the world's biggest floating solar farms, and Qatar is working on the El Kashar project, which will be one of the world's largest solar plants. At the same time, Qatar's electric bus project could offer useful lessons as Singapore moves towards greener public transport networks. Second, as we reach, as we each implement our decarbonization plans, we can work together on clean energy solutions needed for the transition to a low carbon future. Gulf countries have been actively investing in needle-moving clean energy solutions, such as hydrogen and CCUS. Qatar commissioned a carbon storage plant in 2019, the largest of its kind in the region, which aims to capture over 5 million tons of CO2 per year from Qatar's LNG industry by 2025. In Singapore, clean energy research is a core part of our investment of 18 billion US dollars in the next five years to strengthen the research and innovation capabilities of our companies. Third, green growth and resilience present prime areas for cooperation. On green growth, Gulf countries have made great strides in areas such as renewable energy, circular economy, and green cities. On our end, 
We aim to develop Singapore as a carbon trading and service hub and a leading center for green finance to facilitate Asia's transition. As a founding member of the One Planet Sovereign Wealth Fund initiative, which builds climate change into financial decision-making, the Qatar Investment Authority would boost green finance as it explores opportunities in Asia. On resilience, Singapore and Qatar share similar concerns, including food security, particularly in face of climate change. We would be keen to learn more about Qatar's strategies and share best practices. Singapore's economic ties and relationship with the Middle East, and particularly the Gulf region, are on the upswing. Green growth and resilience have the potential to be the new pillars of cooperation to deepen our ties further. Let me end by wishing all of you fruitful discussions. I look forward to hearing more about your key findings and will certainly welcome new ideas on how we can collectively address this existential climate crisis and build a more sustainable, inclusive and resilient future for our people. Thank you. Thank you very much, Minister, for your wise words. Um, I'll now go straight to the panel and because I want to maximize time for the audience to ask questions. Uh, climate change is an existential issue facing all of humanity. It faces all regions, all countries, but its manifestations are not the same in every country, in every region. Now, we have a very dazzling <laughs> panel before us today of experts. I'm not going to, ex to, um, to introduce them in detail, but I am going to ask them, given that, as I just said, the effects of climate change are different in different countries, in different regions, in different parts of different regions. I'm going to ask all of you the same question and I would like you to answer it in nine minutes each. Uh, I'll start with uh, Ramat Witola, who was Indonesia's special envoy, the special envoy of the Indonesian president for climate change. He has had a much lengthier and distinguished career than just that. Among other things, he, he and I serve as ambassadors of our respective countries in Moscow a lifetime ago. Uh, it's good to see you again, Pak. Um, but uh, my question you. for all of you, starting with you, Pak Vitola, is this. Climate change has many manifestations. What do you think is the most greatest, most challenging manifestation in your country? And what is the most challenging aspect of responding to that challenge in your country? Over to you, Pak. Thank you, uh, Your Excellency Bilhari, and good afternoon to all the participants in this webinar. To answer the question, I would start with uh, uh, some notes that Indonesia is an archipelagic country with two thirds of its areas covered in wa with water. This is the combination of sea level rise with the increase of the hydrometeorological disaster is one of the biggest threats from climate change towards Indonesia. The Indonesian Institute of Science has projected that sea levels in 2050 and 2100 will rise by 25 centimeters to 50 centimeters. This will certainly threaten 
millions of residents who live in the coastal areas of Indonesia, such as Jakarta, Semarang, and Demak. I will use Jakarta as an example in this discussion. Recent news headlines puts Jakarta as number one in a very concerning list, the most vulnerable city to climate change impact. Indonesia's Meteorology and Climatology and Geophysical Agency note that, the, that based on the historical record of rainfall in Jakarta, there's a trend of increasing intensity and frequency of extreme rain, which correlates with the occurrence of floods in Jakarta for the last 30 years, starting from 1990. The increased occurrence of flooding events affect all levels of society, from the informal housing complexes to the rich dwelling areas. However, the two certainly have differences in their capacity to adapt. The rich can afford to stay temporarily in hotels, in luxury hotels at that, whilst the poor have to gather in a cramped place in schools, mosques, the houses of friends, etc., putting them further at risk again to, uh, uh, on the COVID-19 infections and other waterborne diseases. In addition, Jakarta also faces both sea level rises while it's also sinking. There are two items here at this moment. This moment, almost half of Jakarta sits below sea level and it's one of the fastest sinking cities in the world, sinking by an average of one to 15 centimeters a year. In just 10 years, from 2008 to 2018, North Jakarta has sunk two and a half meters, which is taller than any of us here, here now. And then some parts of the of the sink of the city sink as much as 25 centimeters a year, which is more than double the global efforts for coastal megacities. Tackling this issue is very challenging, of course, as multiple interrelated problems would need to be addressed. Research by the Indonesia's agency from the as for the assessment and application of technology identified there are four causes of subsidence that occur in Jakarta. The first is groundwater extraction. The second is construction loads due to the extreme, uh, extreme number of buildings being constructed. The third is natural consolidation of alluvium soils. And the fourth is tectonic, tectonic soil subsidence. Out of the four, land subsidence due to groundwater extraction is the dominant phenomenon that occurs in Jakarta. The cause of the groundwater extraction itself is the combination of the growth of population and the need for access to clean water. In September 2020, Jakarta has a population of 10.5 million. And there are a lot of people in Jakarta rely on groundwater for everybody's needs, obviously. The Office of the, of the Jakarta Municipality 
notes that Dekai Jakarta, which is Jakarta, used 8.155 million cubic meters of groundwater in 2018. To tackle the sinking, the current plan is to build seawalls offshore, but it will only have limited effect. There are also solutions that will come from the plan to move our capital city from Jakarta, but the effect will be limited by the timeline as the city continues to sink and the sea level rises. There's also a possibility that this plan could affect Indonesia's compliance with the greater climate change adaptation strategies. Moving forward, the most important is the strategies of micro solutions enlarged into macro solutions, or essentially the people's solutions into the government's paradigms and solutions. In addition to the existing program, there's a need to focus on halting the sinking off by providing a dependable source of water supply to stop the pit to stop the people from using groundwater groundwater. In addition, climate change mitigation and adaptation should be a key consideration for the policy formulation by into the implementation level. Last but not least, I'd like also to emphasize the importance of climate justice when making plans for mitigation and adaptation. Everyone should be put into consideration. Various factors, such as economics, levels, genders, sensitive ice issues, race, etc., should not be neglected. No one should be left behind because the climate change affects every one of us. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Papuetola. Now I move to uh, Vin. Vin, the same question to you. What's the most serious manifestation of climate change in Vietnam and what's your greatest challenge in meeting it? Over to you. Thank you very much, Bilahari. I thank you for the invitation to participate in this webinar. Actually for Vietnam, we also exposed uh, to serious climate change impacts as a whole country. But I will focus more and the real challenge for Vietnam is the Mercondental part of Vietnam. Uh, this is very much important for us. The Mekong Delta is typically uh, and seriously impacted by, by the climate change, coupled with other factors, including human behavior. Uh, first, uh, on the Mekong Delta of Vietnam, this is most crucial part of the country. Uh, it cover an area of one-eighth of Vietnam, but it can produce one-fifth of the GDP of Vietnam. And there, there, is, there are 20 million people here, but it can produce 60% of rice production for Vietnam, not to say others. Actually, the, this, in this area of the Mekong Delta of Vietnam, there is an existential challenge and the climate change scenarios for Vietnam, including the Mekong Delta of Vietnam, uh, have produced a picture of having the sea level rise of up to 
65 to 100 centimeters by the end of this century. And this is, as uh, Minister Grace Fu has just mentioned, also be a, a crucial case of climate change for Vietnam in the Mekong Delta. But if we look into this issue closely, the most immediate and biggest impact of climate change would be water security. Why I say that? Water security in the Mekong Delta is very much important uh, because climate change can create uh, webs and uh, the sea level rise, but at the same time, the lower level of the Mekong River will also uh, give rise to the seawater coming into the field in, inland. And this is the two things happened together that have been given the Mekong Delta of Vietnam uh, more and more uh, inundated and also salinated. And this is very much crucial and very much important and impact for Vietnam to tackle. And if we see, and if we see the, uh, the causes that give rise to this one, certainly climate change with the fluctuations of weather, temperature, uh, the seasonal raining uh, have been one cause of effect and it's a long-term impact as well. But on the other ones, the management and the use of water in the Mekong River uh, due to human behavior is another one. All these two factors are, uh, are, are helping to uh, make the impact of climate change and the issue of water security more serious for the region of Mekong and certainly for the Mekong part, Mekong Delta part of Vietnam. I, I take it for example, if by the end of this century, the sea level rise uh, coming up to one meter, then about 40% of the Mekong Delta uh, will be uh, inundated, inundated and salinated. This is very much uh, an issue for us. And certainly we will be uh, losing the uh, rice basin and also uh, uh, about near uh, 20 uh, million people will be affected in this area. But on the other hand, the day-to-day -day as of now, the uh, impact that we, we meet is also the low level of the Mekong River and the fluctuations of the level of water and the volume of water and the changes of the flow of the Mekong River uh, that have uh, in a changing patterns as usual that have also created a problem for us in the Mekong uh, Delta of Vietnam. For example, during the dry season, uh, because of conservation uh, and the dams over there, there may be shortage of water, uh, which are more serious. Then the sea water will, will be coming in and the sea, not, not due just to the sea level rise. So we think that we have to do to work together uh, on this very serious issue at national level, regional level and global level as well. We have a, a number of uh, important 
uh, regional forums in the region, like uh, the Mekong River Commission, like the GMS, the Greater Mekong uh, Cooperation, or the Mekong Land Tour between the Mekong countries and China uh, Cooperation Forum. All these have to, to tackle the different issues of climate change and development in the region, but they are yet to prove uh, effective with regard to the level of, of, of challenges that we face. So we think that uh, countries in the region need to work together with partners as well in order to, uh, uh, to, to develop a kind of rule-based order in the Mekong region so that everybody uh, will be benefiting from the equitable and reasonable use of this one. Uh, I will be stopping here, but water security is very much an important issue for the Mekong Dental region as well, and for the Mekong Dental of Vietnam as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vin. And now I will call on uh, Andosan. Andosan is a senior uh, editorial writer for Nikkei, which is one of Japan's premier newspapers. He specializes in the environment and he'll give us, I guess, a non-governmental or civil society perspective on the challenges facing Japan. Over to you, Ando-san. Thank you for that introduction and thank you very much for inviting me to this interesting forum. Um, yes, uh, in order to answer your question, I, I think I will have to uh, tell you what kind of disaster we are facing recently. Uh, most of these are common with other uh, Asian countries. Uh, we are feeling the effect of climate change every year recently. Uh, those downpours, really unbelievable, uh, strong precipitation that we face this this season. This is just the season we it, it, it's start, starting now. And um, the worst thing we face is, of course, the powerful typhoon. And uh, yeah, we have been facing this for years, uh, maybe centuries. But recently, as we collect data, we find that uh, more intense storms approach Japan without weakening. Well, before they, they as they as they come come north, uh, they used to weaken, but now they come without uh, losing much power. And that is causing not only precipitation, but strong winds and also tidal waves. And that causes flooding. And you know, the big cities are very uh, uh, weak. Uh, when we face flooding, they, they come into uh, coming everywhere. Uh, we have a, a kind of a, a lot of uh, malls underground we have trained we have stores and, and it's it's like a big underground city and the water comes in and it causes electric it, electricity shutdowns and a lot of economic uh, disasters i just show you one slide how serious these uh disasters are just a second Okay, these are uh, compiled by the insurance company, uh, the Association of Insurance Companies. So uh, they are put in order of how expensive it was in terms of insurance. 
paid uh, because of the disaster. And as you see these top 10, you see these are very recent. The number one, 20, 2018 uh, was the, uh, the worst one. We have like almost $10 billion of insurance payment. That's, that's a lot. And then there's 2019, that's the second place. Fourth place is 20, uh, 2019 also, and sixth place, 2014. So these, most of these come in the last 10 years or so, and most are caused by typhoons. So this, from this, you can understand how serious. Uh, I just want to add that these payments are so big. It used to be cheaper before we had more uh, victims, like thousands of people were dead in 1940s and 50s. Now we don't have that much victims, but the payment is high. That's because we own cars, we, are, we have better houses, we have better properties, and those are lost. So that means we have more economic damages. Just one interesting thing we hear see here, uh, heavy snow. Uh, in, during the uh, global warming, uh, what's happening here is whether it's uh, bad rain or snow, the global warming brings us very extreme weather. That's what we are facing. So extremely heavy precipitation, extreme heat wave, and also sometimes these kind of uh, extreme snow, which is unbelievable. It happened in Tokyo in February 2014. So. These are, you know, almost um, inevitable. They are becoming more and more inevitable, and uh, we are facing more uh, economic disasters in uh, recent years. So, in order to respond to these uh, uh, very bad uh, things happening, first we, as you know, we uh, we think we are a country of technology. We like we like uh, advanced technology very much. Um, we are trying to have better prediction of bad extreme weather. Uh, using supercomputers, we uh, renew our meteorological computers every three to four years. The agency also, but not only agency, but also private companies uh, providing services for uh, uh, weather-related damages. So the prediction now we have like uh, precipitation for each couple of square square meters. How worse uh, it is in this one block. How that will uh, change in next couple of hours. So when people see that on their smartphone, uh, they can prepare to evacuate. But uh, the problem is most people don't know where to evacuate because as you know, Japan has a lot of mountains everywhere and it's very hard to find out where to go. So, you know, we have better prediction system. We have strong, stronger river banks. We have more dams. Those hardwares are there, but using, taking advantage of those hardware, uh, having prof uh, profiting from those hardware and really to evacuate and to save lives, there's still are a lot of issues there. So it's not uh, working as good as uh, it, it has to be. And one very interesting example of the next 
uh, a future technology that we are uh, trying to do is uh, a big project that is just starting. It's just still feasibility, but it's called Typhoon Shot, like Moonshot. Uh, it's to uh, kind of control the strength of typhoon. And uh, it's still feasibility, but people are trying to understand how to change the the wind, the precipitation of the perturbation just a bit in the beginning. And that will cause the uh, typhoon to be weakened in, in the hours to come. So that's maybe not useful for the next 10 years or so, but in the future, it could be. And most interestingly, we are trying to use the great energy of such typhoon uh, to, uh, for, to have more power uh, for electricity. Uh, I think that is a very interesting uh, project. Uh, that's, that's still future. But for now, as, as, uh, in terms of mitigation, in terms of reducing carbon emission in Japan, that's a very big challenge uh, because we rely so much on coal, as you know. Uh, about 80% of our electric power source comes from coal. And what's maybe not good uh, when that is seen from, especially from European countries, is that we are using coal plants, but we believe that most coal plants are using the up-to-date technology. So there are mostly, we have more low emission coal power plants. And we do feel that there are needs from demands from Asian countries still for coal plants. So we're trying to export those coal plants. But uh, as we do that, uh, we get a lot of criticism from everywhere. Uh, so we are trying to decrease those uh, coal plants, but still they will stay there for the next couple of, uh, maybe a decade or so. If we have more nuclear energy, maybe we can switch easier. Uh, to a low emission energy source. But there also is a problem. As you know, there has been a big accident of uh, Fukushima. And since then, uh, nuclear plants are not operating. Much of them are shut, have been shut down and having difficulty, we're having difficulty restart those nuclear plants. So without nuclear plants and without coal plant, uh, it's... Uh, kind of, uh, we have no way to uh, really change our energy source. So we are now trying to have more solar energy and wind energy, but still there's uh, not enough land. That's, there's always a problem with that land issue. Uh, when we look at the ocean for the wind power, uh, as we talked, typhoon are coming, stronger typhoon are coming, and we don't have very shallow you know, seabed close to Japan. So there also is a problem. So when we talk about this mitigation and also to reduce carbon, uh, these challenges are so uh, difficult, but still we have just declared that we're going to decrease carbon carbon emission by 46% by 2030 and uh, carbon neutral by 2050. So a lot of discussions are going just today also in uh, within the government and also private sector to uh, find out solution. So because we have to uh, have more explanations uh, during the uh, coming UN negotiations oh, yeah. and meetings. So these we, for these, I think 
we have to cooperate with other countries to lower the reduction. It's not only about one country, so it's, it's about the uh, many countries. So I think, especially in, in, in case of coal power, I think we can all cooperate to decrease the emission from coal, coal power. Uh, yeah, I think I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Endo-san. Now, finally, to on the panel to Albatra. Albatra is another old friend. He used to be in the foreign ministry. Now he is the czar of the environment in Singapore in the environment and sustainability ministry. Over to you, Albert. Uh, thanks, Belhari. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, thanks. Uh, I'm happy to be on this panel and uh, greetings to, to everybody on the panel. Um, the greatest threat which climate change poses to Singapore is really to our very survival and to our continued success. As, as many of you are aware, Singapore is an island city state. We are no hinterland, 760 square kilometers. So if sea levels were to rise by one meter, by 2100, many parts of the island will be underwater. This is why our Prime Minister has called climate change an urgent and existential threat to Singapore. Earlier, my minister has already mentioned some of the very specific challenges which Singapore will face. Access to food and water, sea level rise, uh, rising heat in the urban environment, these are very specific areas of climate change that we have to deal with, very specific aspects of climate change that we have to deal with. But if you ask me what is the most serious effect is really to Singapore's continued success and very survival. This is why we're spending time and resources to understand, mitigate and adapt to climate change. It will be a very long-term endeavor building starting from now until at least 2100. And specifically for Singapore, our aim is to build up our three R's, what we call our three resiliences, climate resilience, resource resilience, and economic resilience. Let me elaborate. First, we need to build up climate resilience by investing heavily in research to better understand and help us mitigate and adapt to climate change. We have been investing heavily on research into the impact of climate change in the tropics and tropical climate and tropical weather is much, much more difficult to predict compared to climate and weather in temperate countries. By 2100, as I mentioned, sea levels could rise by up to one meter. Such a similar increase in the Gulf, for instance, could submerge more than 10% of the land in Bahrain. We expect to invest over 75 billion US dollars over the next 50 to 100 years in coastal defenses such as building seawalls, pumping stations, land reclamation, and nature-based solutions. Next, we will enhance our resilience to floods caused by extreme weather. We are developing a coastal inland flood model to holistically simulate the impact of coastal and inland flood risks and installing flood barriers to protect major infrastructure such as our underground railway system. We have spent 1.5 US billion dollars on drainage work since 2011, and we'll spend another US $1 billion over the next five years. We are researching into moderating urban heat, such as by piloting cool paints 
and increasing greenery. We have a plan, for instance, to plant more than a million more trees by 2030. The second R that we need to build is to build up our resource resilience in water, food, and energy. We have successfully closed our water loop to wastewater recycling into what we call new water, which is an ultra clean, ultra pure water. New water and desalination provide us two weather resilient water resources, but they are highly energy dependent. We are conducting research to half the energy required for desalination. From this year, we will power our local waterworks with one of the world's largest floating solar farms. On food, today Singapore imports 90% of the food we eat. But mindful of global disruptions from climate change or even from pandemics that we have seen over the last 12 months, we aim to sustainably, sustainably produce 30% of our nutritional needs locally by 2030. We are investing in alternative proteins, for instance, as they can be produced in large quantities with little land and labor and provide us with weather-resilient sources of nutrition. We are setting aside US $100 million to drive innovation in farming and food production technologies. On energy, we will need to become more energy resilient. We will quadruple our solar energy production by 2025 as solar is our most viable renewable energy source. Uh, I think uh, other panelists have mentioned, for instance, uh, land constraints. We in Singapore, as I mentioned, is a small island city state. We have severe land constraints. So other uh, renewable energy sources like, like wind, for instance, or even waves don't really work for us. So solar, solar is our most viable renewable energy source. We will improve energy efficiency across our industrial building and transport sectors, thereby reducing our energy consumption by 8 million megawatt hours per year. This will be sufficient to power all our household energy needs for one year in 2030. We are also researching clean energy solutions, such as hydrogen. We will build a circular economy by turning waste into resource. We are converting incineration bottom ash into construction material, which we call NewSAP. We are exploring pyrolysis to convert plastic waste into new oil, which can replace fossil fuels as feedstock to make presents. Third, we will strengthen our economic resilience by transforming carbon-intensive sectors and building a green economy powered by green finance. We see climate change as both a challenge and a strategic opportunity. Countries and companies that can produce green and sustainable products will have a competitive advantage in an increasingly carbon and resource-constrained world. We will ensure our energy and chemicals facilities are among the best in class in carbon efficiency while researching new technologies for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. We aim to make Singapore a hub for carbon trading and services, as well as green finance. Despite the pandemic, Singapore issued US $2.6 in green social and sustainability bonds last year. We will further support the origination of such bonds through grants and put US $2 billion into green investments. We have just set up the Enterprise Sustainability Program to help our companies and workers grow their capabilities to embrace green innovation, develop green products, 
and seek out business opportunities in sustainability. Even as the world battles the COVID-19 pandemic, we must keep our eyes on climate change, but governments cannot do it alone. One of the most serious challenges to answer Bilhari's question we face is how to mobilize the ideas, energy and resources from the people and private sectors to jointly tackle climate change. Given Singapore's land and resource constraints, the trade-offs we face are stuck. We can overcome them only with a coordinated whole of nation response. This is why we launched the Singapore Green Plan 2030, even amid the COVID pandemic. The Singapore Green Plan will chart our path towards zero waste emissions and strengthen our tree resiliences. To catalyze ground up movement and nudge our communities to be more environmentally friendly, we launched a US 37 million Singapore Echo Fund. In our schools, we are enhancing sustainability education in the curriculum and inculcating a deeper sense of environmental consciousness, sustainable living in our youth. The second serious challenge we face is that climate change requires a coordinated global response, which I think previous speakers have also touched on. As my minister mentioned, Singapore contributes around 0.1% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. We will do our best to reduce our carbon footprint, but for small states like us, we depend on a collective effort to address the issue globally. This is why Singapore has been a strong supporter of a multilateral rule-based approach to addressing climate change. We are heartened that many countries have, advanced, have enhanced their commitments under the Paris Agreement, but our current efforts still fall short. For COP26, we need all parties, particularly the major emitters, to come forward with ambitious pledges and long-term strategies and share, complete, and share concrete implementation plans to achieve them. Singapore is doing our part. We are providing capability building under the Singapore Cooperation Program and Climate Action Package. And we have partnered with New Zealand and the UNFCCC Secretariat to organize capacity building workshops for our region on the Paris Rulebook and enhancing climate pledges. We are also working on importing electricity from Malaysia to test the feasibility of setting up a regional power grid, as well as setting up a regional carbon market. We hope these measures will help ASEAN realize our climate aspirations. In summary, climate change is existential and urgent. Even as we battle the COVID-19 pandemic, we must not lose the opportunity to build back better and greener and to continue pushing the envelope on our collective climate ambition. Thank you. Thank you, Albert. Uh, we'll now go straight to question time. We have received uh, quite a number of questions already, and we have just over half an hour uh, for questions from the audience. Um, please do send in your questions to the Doha Forum organizers uh, through the chat function, if, you, if there are any more questions. The first question is uh, directed to you, Andosan. And I think it's directed to you because you are the only really uh, non-governmental environmental specialist on this panel. Okay. I don't think it is, uh, you're being held responsible personally. <laughs> the question is this, I would like to know what steps have been taken to tackle the pollution initiated by the production and use of polythene, in particular, the uh, discarding of polythene and other plastics into the ocean. 
Yeah, um, we are very heavy users of uh, those plastics, and uh, uh, every we we really love those plastic bags uh, <laughs> and plastic trays also. If you go to the supermarkets in Japan, all kinds of foods, not only raw food, but processed food, uh, even fruits like strawberries, apples, they're in plastic bags. And we buy them and put in another plastic bag. So these, uh, we talk very often about pet bottles like these, which is bad for the environment. And we are reducing this now, but still, as long as we use those bags and trays, especially food trays, uh, plastic waste would increase. And we are all aware of that. So we have now new regulations to reduce those plastic trays and bottles. And uh, we are, uh, it's, it's going a bit by bit uh, strengthening these restrictions. But I think what's important is that people have to change their uh, minds and their, their attitudes. Uh, we use those plastic because we want things to be clean, especially in this COVID-19 world. It is very difficult because people want them to be even cleaner and they, want, uh, they don't want to touch things and eat them straight. Um, so there's that kind of difficulty, but I think as it was really experimental, but we have uh, decided, the government has decided to uh, people to decided to have a system that people pay certain amount of money for each plastic bag that they ask uh, at convenience store or supermarket. Even if we just add those plastic bags, it's, it's, it's not a great percentage of all the plastic waste, but it did contribute to change people's mind. So from there, I think we can go ahead and uh, reduce the waste, but still, what we do with the waste that already are there, uh, we are trying to burn them uh, with very strong uh, energy uh, without uh, emitting the poisonous gases. There's a, there's a very concrete technology for that. And we're using the heat from that burning and use that heat for other purposes so we don't lose energy, that using those energy means we're reducing uh, carbon emission instead of burning other uh, coal or the oil. So this combination of uh, waste management, the burning system and change of mind of people, I think we, we will uh, improve, um, uh, we will reduce the uh, waste uh, from plastic. I don't know if this is uh, answering uh, the question, but that's uh, what we are doing now. Oh, I think that's a very good answer to the question. Now, the next question is from Mohammad Al-Sulati, who is a PhD student at the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College in London. And I think I'm going to ask all the panelists to answer this question, starting in the same order. Um, uh, but with Itola, Vin, you, you, Andosan, and then Albert. The question is a very interesting one. Between policy or law, which tool do you think is more important to address 
the climate change crisis, policy or law? And there's a second part to the question. Uh, I know Asian countries do a great job in terms of climate resilience. Can the panelists share with us any climate change related law or legislation enacted in their countries? I guess the most important one in your, in your opinion. So two parts, policy or law, which is the more important tool? tool and as far as law is concerned, which is the most important piece of legislation in your respective countries. First, uh, over to you, Pak Witola. Uh, you're muted still. Pak, we can't hear you, you're muted. Yes, yes, okay. Okay, now we can. Can you hear me now, yes. Well, thank you for uh, giving me the first turn to answer. I think uh, the most important is policy, because from policy we can make laws. And policies are implementable, so we, have, we cannot waste time by going into uh, law, into uh, figuring out what law to do. There's the policy that comes and it is translated into actions to overcome, uh, to mitigate the effects of the climate change. And I think uh, in our case, this policy has also to keep in mind that we have uh, a lot of people endangered of the climate change. So adaptation policies and programs are very important. Thank you. I don't hear you. Vin, uh, the same question to you. You're muted, Vin. Vin, you're muted, we can't hear you. Sorry, sorry. To me, both policy and law will be very much important. In my country, sometimes from law, we have policies and plan of actions, but sometimes we have pilot projects because environmental protection and also climate change are very complicated and sometimes controversial issues. We have to start with pilot projects. So policy will come first and then after some time we we have law, so both ways are very much important and interconnected. For example, we have a piece of legislation on envir environmental protection and also a plan of action on climate change. So this is, uh, they are supporting each other and I think uh, both ways will be very important. Now, piece of uh, legislation which is most important with regard to climate change resilience in my country, I think, we have to think of two things. We need an overall uh, piece of legislation that is uh, an environment uh, legislation, but at the same time, uh, which is not a, a piece of legislation, but very much important is piece of policy. That is a plan of action uh, to implement the commitments under the Paris uh, Agreement for example. So this is my case. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ando-san? Yes. Uh, I think policy for Japan. Uh, actually, we don't like very much laws. Uh, very strong laws uh, really makes people uh, hard to do what they want to do. So we prefer guidelines. It's very uh, tricky thing, but Guidelines are good because they are more voluntary. The companies, private companies, have their own goals, voluntary goals, and 
usually they're very good. So we add those uh, goals and uh, if it works, good. If it doesn't, okay, then we might think about laws. Uh, the best law um, we have in Japan, I cannot think of the best, but uh, there's of course a big framework law for the environmental protection, but I think one of the model, a good, uh, one of a good example would be the regulation, the law to reduce uh, nitrogen oxide or sulfur oxide. Uh, th these are the atmospheric uh, particles that, uh, these are pollutions actually, traditional pollutions, NOx and SOx. But I think this could be used for other things as well. And also uh, the law to reduce CFCs. These are to protect ozone, but we now understand that CFCs are very uh, responsible for global warming too. So these are good models. We can have similar uh, maybe regulation to cope with global climate issues as well. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Albert. Uh, thanks, Belhari. On this one, actually, I, I would say that I echo uh, Ambassador Vin's point. I think it's a combination of both policy and law. Uh, because fundamentally what you're trying to do is you're trying to change people's behavior, right? And to do that, actually, it's one of the most difficult, when we talk about sustainable living, dealing with uh, uh, climate change and being green in the way we do things, actually the bit I struggle with uh, in my day-to-day -day work here in the ministry is how to change people's behavior, uh, which can be quite entrenched. So you need a combination of both uh, policy levers as well as legislative levers to effect that change. So for instance, we, we talked about uh, the plastic bag charter, which uh, Endosan answered the question earlier. Uh, we have the same problem in Singapore. The excessive consumption of plastics, not just the bags, but really wrapping, uh, packaging, generates waste. But because we have quite an efficient uh, waste collecting system, we collect all the waste and when we burn them in our waste to energy plants, a bit like what Endosan has described. But what we want is, although you, 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 ha you harness energy from the, the burning of the waste, actually you emit carbon dioxide that goes into the air. So what we want is actually get people to reduce consumption of plastics. And we've been piloting uh, with, with our supermarkets, uh, uh, campaigns to discourage people from excessive consumption. But I think we've moved to a certain stage where now, we are discussing uh, the possibility of doing a back charge as a way of getting people to, to take climate action. So a combination of both policy levers and legislative levers. I think where, where government needs to act very strongly would be on building hard infrastructures and so on. But to change social behavior, I think usually takes a bit of time. Then in terms of um, what is a very significant piece of legislation which uh, my, uh, our countries have passed, uh, in 2019, uh, we passed a legislation, a piece of legislation called the Resource Sustainability Act. It's not very well known even in Singapore because it went a bit under the radar, but this is actually a very profound piece of uh, law. What it does is actually it sets out the legislative framework for, for recycling, for resource sustainability in the whole of Singapore. And what we will do with this, or what we've been doing with this act is to set up what is called an extended producer responsibility system uh, focusing at the moment on three key waste streams, food, electronic waste, and of course, plastic waste. And then getting the producers who bring certain amount of, uh, let's say, uh, 
electronic uh, equipment into Singapore, laptops or, or mobile phones, for instance, they are then responsible for collecting back that particular uh, uh, mobile phone or for washing machines and so on at the end of the life cycle and be responsible for the proper disposal and proper recycling. So this actually resource sustainability is quite profound in, like I said, as creating the legislative framework for recycling in Singapore, but more importantly, for creating a circular economy. Because what you want is to be able to keep resources in the system for as long as possible, convert what used to be waste into resource and then climate-proof uh, Singapore. Over. Thank you. I think the next question, what your, your answer, Albert, leads very nicely into the next question. Uh, uh, this is an anonymous question, and the, the lady or gentleman who asked it is interested to know how governments can communicate climate urgency to the problem in order to promote climate action. You mentioned that, Albert. And he specifically mentioned as an example, only as an example, how Japan can convince its population that nuclear energy can be a safe energy source and is key to greening uh, Japan. So I will start with you, Endo, and then I will go to you, Vin, and then I'll go to Pak Ramat, and then finally end up with you, Albert. So, Endo-san. Yeah, uh, that's a very difficult question. If we knew how to do that, I think we had already solved our problem. Uh, but maybe what's important is more uh, communication between the electric power supply, supply which is typical, and the local people and also uh, everyone in, in the country. Uh, the typical is providing a lot of data still from, one, uh, from the nuclear reactor, reactor, but these are just data. And they're saying, okay, we're doing everything we can. Other electric power suppliers too are saying, okay, we have seen that bad accident. We are now doing whatever we can, but people never know because there's always the risk of even bigger earthquake, uh, powerful hurricane, uh, typhoons. So I think it's, it's a matter of now risk and benefit. People have to know that there are uh, risks, there are risks, risks, but also the benefit from the nuclear energy. What's bad is the politicians, uh, they don't, want to really to discuss these issues. We had a number of elections since the accident, but never this has been number one issue during the election. You know, the politicians, I think, have to ask people, okay, our government wants to reduce carbon emission. Nuclear is a very important power source. Uh, there is a risk, there's a benefit. Let's, dis let's discuss and okay, if you agree with the government, uh, we're going to win. If you don't agree, okay, we lose. You know, the yeah. politicians really have to do something like this, but they never did. So it's always, we're always in the middle. Okay, some say yes, some say no. Which way we go, we never know. And time is running out. So this is a very bad situation. I think uh, the politics has to uh, change. Thank you. Vin, over to you. You are you are muted. You are muted, Vin. Actually, my understanding of communication from the government to the people 
uh, is something related to raising awareness and implementation. So it depends on issue by issue. For example, how to change the behavior of the people with regard to uh, adaptation to the sea level rise and the water security issue. Uh, we have to come to the local people to show them with uh, the experts, to show them how to do structural and non-structural measures related to adaptation of, 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 of uh, sea level rise and, and, and the uh, salination uh, phenomena. For example, we have to have experts coming to the local people on how to have different variety of rice to be adaptable to, to the new changes of the land with salination, for example. But on the level of emission, for example, there's a law and we have to use uh, the mass media and a compulsory uh, and enforcement nature of this one. It will be different, it will be broadcasted uh, all over the country. So in different ways for different issues. Thank you. Albert? Actually, the, the, the challenge is how to explain uh, climate change in a way which an ordinary person can understand. And more importantly, explain to the ordinary person why his or her individual action on a day-to-day -day matters. And it's not easy uh, because how do you tell people that the, the extra plastic bag uh, that the person takes home from the supermarket has got a carbon footprint and how that will eventually contribute to carbon dioxide that goes into the air, which then for causes the, the earth to heat up. So it calls for actually quite sophisticated uh, political communication skills. And it, it calls for a way to explain something which is very large and theoretical, which can then be related to the day-to-day -day lives of, of ordinary people so that they understand that the actions and the decisions matter. And especially in the case of Singapore, as I mentioned, because we are so small, there are trade-offs to be made. Uh, <clears throat> it's well and good to want to live a sustainable lifestyle, but if that results in increase in cost of living, for instance, how do you, conv how do you convince the consumer that something which is slightly more expensive, but because it's produced uh, in a very environmentally friendly way and a socially responsible way, that the consumer must agree to pay more? Uh, it is an issue in, in Singapore which has received uh, a lot of attention. Uh, two years ago, uh, the Prime Minister, he, he, does an annual, uh, he does an annual State of Nation address, uh, usually in August. Uh, two years, two, three, oh, sorry, in 2018, three years ago, he actually spent um, almost 40 minutes, a third of his time in this State of Union address, explaining to Singaporeans with charts and diagrams why climate change, particularly sea level rise, is going to make a big impact on us and why the government will probably need to spend something like between 50 to 100 billion US dollars over the next 50, 100 years to prepare for this. And again, this is not an e easy decision because for governments which are re-elected every three to five years, why do you want to prioritize spending uh, over such a long period as against uh, spending in the immediate term, which is much more attractive politically? So the question is how much money do you want to spend on insurance? Uh, the other thing that we have done, uh, which I think my minister alluded to and I mentioned as well, because climate change and sustainability has become very important. So in February this year, uh, the Singapore government announced its uh, Singapore Green Plan 2013. It's a whole of nation uh, plan uh, to explain to Singaporeans 
what we're doing in terms of trying to move towards a zero emissions uh, target and also what they can do in terms of uh, living a sustainable lifestyle. But it, it, is, it takes constant effort to communicate in a way which normal human beings can understand and also keep reinforcing the message in various media, mainstream media, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Mirai. I think it's uh, very important that uh, everybody is concerned and to be concerned, you have to know where it is. And in Indonesia, as well as in other countries with large populations, it's not, it's not simple. So we have to talk in the language that people uh, are used to hear. And it is what concerns their uh, livelihood, actually. So I think we are packaging our communication with what is good for them in the, uh, in the day to day life. They don't understand uh, the, the higher arguments on climate change, but we're doing this. So what, uh, what the efforts against climate change may be good for your day to day living. And that is what we're trying to do. And I think that is, uh, we're making headway to that. We cannot uh, talk too much on the science. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Uh, we have about just under 15 minutes left, and I want to give some time for panelists to have the final word. And we have a lot of questions. So I'm going to apologize in advance to all those who submitted questions if we can't uh, reach all of them. And, I, and I'm sure we can't, we can't answer all of them. So I'm going to focus on the more general questions rather than the questions uh, directed towards specific countries. And this is a general question for Melissa Lowe, whom I suspect is from Singapore. And it's to all of you. And I guess we will start uh, in the order we started. Part with Tola first, Vin, uh, Ando, and then Albert Liu. And the question is in two parts. What are your respective countries' expectations for uh, the UN COP26 climate conference that's going to take place in November this year? And how crucial is the finalization of the Paris Agreement's work program? In particular, Article 6, you know, which deals with transparency tables, sources of information and so on, to maintaining yes. global climate action. Yes. I think for our country and as well as for uh, our uh, neighbors, the most important thing is uh, the implementation adaptation programs should be really uh, uh, should be really uh, concretized concretized in in Glasgow later because uh, we have to touch the livelihood of the people and it is at this uh, adaptation because uh, we cannot uh, depend on the small people to enter big large projects we have to give them something and that and we will so I hope that the in the in the next cop Adaptation programs will be implemented, and uh, the funds will be distributed to those who make an effort to uh, overcome in their countries. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have another question that I guess is a general one. It's from Sikanda Abdul Kadir. And this has to do with uh, the regional efforts. And I guess he's talking about the broader region. And I would ask all of you to answer this question in, in the reverse order. Albert first, Ando, Vin, and then Pak Vitola. 
Is there any program currently under consideration regarding regional efforts? Uh, there was some mention of it in the talk. Is there any communication with regional countries on this issue? And he mentions uh, China's GEIDCO Global Grid Program is still new and not much details available for it. Uh, so Albert, would you like to start about regional efforts to deal with this issue? Should I answer the other question about the UNFCCC COP or no need? Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about you. Sorry, start with that and then so, go on to the regional Oh, okay. No, so the, the problem is that we have not had a COP for, well, the, the COP last year was postponed because of uh, COVID-19, right? Uh, the, the British have now taken over. Um, they, are, they are quite determined uh, to have a COP uh, later this year in Glasgow, which we think we are supportive of. Um, th there are some outstanding issues uh, from which have not really been resolved, which actually need uh, some uh, urgency in terms of resolving. Article 6 is one of them. Article 6 pertains to uh, carbon markets. Because for, for many of us, for, actually for all of us, uh, the resolution of this becomes quite important because it engages on the issue of how do you, how do you mitigate, how do you do your, your trade-offs when it, it comes to uh, carbon markets. In the case of countries like Singapore where we have no natural resources, the ability to secure uh, carbon credits from elsewhere becomes very important. So Article 6 is one key issue that needs to be resolved. The other, the other thing that we are looking forward to is further commitments. Uh, from especially major emitters uh, to, to uh, enhance uh, their pledges and commitments from uh, all, all members to ensure that whatever commitments they have made uh, will eventually be implemented. The good news is, of course, the U.S. is now back in the game. Uh, Trump, uh, un well, under President Trump, uh, the U.S. had taken itself out of the process. Uh, now under Biden, of course, they're rejoining. That gives a certain momentum. And in fact, the U.S. had convened together uh, a, a, a forum with, uh, with most of the major countries involved uh, not so long ago. And I think that gives quite a nice, uh, strong impetus uh, for us to get uh, moving on this. And uh, on, for the COP, uh, I think my minister mentioned as well, we are, in the case of Singapore, we are involved in some of the, the more delicate diplomatic maneuvers uh, involving ministerial facilitation of some of the more difficult issues at the COP. Uh, she's herself involved in this, um, and in fact, she's uh, she's been uh, she's been asked by the UK COP presidency to to facilitate on the issue of Article Six. So I think she'll need a lot of luck and support on that. Then the issue of uh, regional efforts. Unfortunately, regional efforts have been quite sporadic. Uh, in in ASEAN, for instance, uh, we are discussing the possibility of um, uh, regional uh, energy grids. I mentioned that uh, Singapore, for instance, is considering buying uh, clean energy, sustainable energy from Malaysia as a way of piloting a project so that if this becomes viable, we can look at a kind of regional energy grid. Uh, regional carbon markets is another thing that we really should discuss and talk about. Uh, we would, for instance, be very interested in looking at uh, buying carbon credits from Indonesia, from Vietnam, uh, where you have very large uh, green reserves, which which, uh, which we could look at storing carbon. But unfortunately, uh, move, movement and progress on, on the regional front is, is limited uh, and more could be done. Ando Osan. Yes, uh, first about the COP26. 
what I expect, expect most is uh, ambitious target, more ambitious target from China. Uh, because it's the number one emitter, and they have not changed their uh, their target during the uh, April uh, climate summit. So I hope they will say something more. And what I fear at COP is, you know, people, all the countries are raising targets. NDCs are much more, uh, much harder now. So uh, in next couple of years, what's going to happen if most countries find that these are unrealistic. I hope Paris Agreement is not going to break up. And um, Concerning the regional uh, programs, I think um, one of the interesting thing will be, as uh, other speakers have mentioned, some sort of regional electric grid. Uh, we can, I think, do that. Uh, there are a lot of good places for solar power and so forth, so we can do that. And also, uh, hydrogen transport uh, from one country to another, because hydrogen is going to be a very important energy source. So these are the areas I think we can cooperate. Thank you. Bill? Uh, thank you very much. I also see that the uh, regional frameworks are more to coordinate and support between national plans and, 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 and international and global commitments. Uh, we have uh, uh, forums under the Asia uh, framework or the ASEAN countries or the Mekong groupings. All this one, they have uh, on the agenda items related to climate change and environment. But more and more, they are to support uh, international commitments like SDG 2030 or the Paris Agreement and the COPs. So coordinating countries in their national plan of action and, and the implementation of the international commitments is more for now the role of the regional uh, frameworks. Raising awareness and coordination will be very, very much important for this one. But I also agree with, uh, I'm not sure that on some specific issues related to the region, regional frameworks can be very much uh, a case in point. And uh, as he mentioned, thank you. Well, with Allah. Uh, thank you. Uh, on uh, in general, I agree with uh, the previous uh, speakers, in, in particular uh, with Finn and Albert. Uh, the key to all this is communication and coordination. I am aware, I realize Indonesia is uh, the biggest uh, population and the biggest problems and needs a lot of solutions. So we do need uh, work together and we can learn from uh, our neighbors and of course from of course, uh, more far uh, country like Japan, but in Singapore, you always was uh, talking about the exploitation of uh, alternative energies. We can learn from that. And you did mention that uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, energies is uh, solar energy, which of course is very sympathetic because Indonesia cannot have a grid. We have consists of so many islands. We have to have a micro sun, uh, uh, solar, solar transfer. So coordination and, uh, uh, and coordination and communication of the problems. 
in Indonesia, we try to do our homework to fulfill our NDCs because uh, we are still uh, struggling to make, to make that happen because uh, we are uh, always a lot uh, to do before we can enter the global scale. So thank you for the question and I invite people to work with us. Thank you. Thank you. I have got to wrap it up now because we are running out of time rapidly, but there is one last question which I think is a very appropriate last question. And I would like all of you to answer it in the order which you started. But with Tola, Vin, Ando, and then Albert, the question is this. How can young people involve themselves in policy making for climate change? Young people. After all, this is yes. about the future. But Okay. Uh, thank you for the question. Of course, I cannot speak for the young people. I'm not very young. But I think we have to, young, at heart. <laughs> young at heart. But I think uh, we have to uh, get get their attention that this is their world, and so they have to be more involved. And we have to give all the uh, opportunities for them to work within the context of the of the national policies. And uh, but with, even with uh, without trying, our young people in Indonesia anyway, they are very gung ho in climate change, and that is very encouraging. And that is their part for, uh, for uh, fighting climate change. Thank you. Thank you. I think the young people is very much aware of the issues of environment and climate change. Uh, the, they are taught at school, they are reading uh, documents and, and articles and all these things. So in my country, the young people is very much uh, active in raising the awareness and in engaging themselves in communication. So we should enhance them in all this one, including in terms of formulation of policies or in bringing the issue to the people at large. Thank you. Yes, I think young people are very important. And what's interesting is I do find uh, there's a lot more attention among young people now than just two or three years ago. Uh, it doesn't mean they are on the street, uh, but they know they think a lot about climate issues. I sometimes talk to those uh, students, university students, for example, uh, I get hundreds of questions and reactions. They are so interested in it. So I think things are changing and eventually that will move politi politicians as well and private companies, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Albert? I, I would say that young people should make their voices uh, heard, uh, give their views, but more importantly, take action. Um, I find in the case of Singapore, for instance, there's a lot of awareness in young people about climate change and sustainability issues, but there's a gap between awareness and action. Uh, a lot of them are, are highly aware, but they don't look at what individual actions they can take to contribute uh, to sustainability. They don't look at what they can do in terms of their own personal responsibility in terms of taking climate action. So I would say that young people should not just make their views heard, but take action. Start community level projects, make a change, you know, start with yourself. That'll be my message. Well, we have run out of time. Thank you all panelists for giving us your valuable time, giving us your valuable insights. 
Thank you, Doha Forum, for giving the Middle East Institute of NUS this opportunity. And thank you, audience, uh, for being with us. We have had a very good audience and they have stayed with us. We have got more than, uh, we have had a very good audience, almost uh, 200 over, uh, almost 200 people. And they have been with us uh, throughout this session. Uh, thank you all very much. I apologize to those of you who asked questions which we didn't have time to answer. But obviously this is a very engaging issue, a very urgent issue for all of us. So once again, thank you all and it's good to see old friends again. Bye-bye. <laughs>